2: Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. How are you, Dr. Josh?
2: We've made it, Santosh.
1: <laughs> the, yes. end,
2: the end of our ninth season.
1: Yeah. We've oh my emptied God. an
2: entire awesome. digital truckload of ebooks on 80 plagues.
1: Yes.
0: Uh,
2: so I will be taking. That particular link down, could other ebooks appear in the future? maybe, but by the time you're hearing this, you better get over and sign up because as soon as I remember, it's gone forever.
1: <laughs> meaning that uh he hasn't quite uh rescinded the offer yet, and if y'all hearing the dulcet tones of our voice manage to zip on over while it's still open, please consider this a generous extension
2: also. We're on TikTok now. Kind Woo! of. So if you'd like to see our attempts at video, swing on over to Dr. J Talks Medicine. T-O-K-S. Clever, right?
1: <laughs> Get it? Yeah. <laughs>
2: and and now that we have run aground at the end of this season, I was trying to Yar. figure out I'm glad you yard, Santosh, because <laughs> next month is international talk like a pirate day. But Yes. Before we get to pirate medicine, which is an episode that we have done in the past, we should talk a little bit about being marooned, about shipwreck medicine, being stranded oh. on a desert island. What would you oh. do?
1: Oh my! I, I don't, I don't know. I mean. I almost certainly would have to drop my vegetarianism if I wanted to survive. I mean, I'm guessing there are... like, This isn't like the tiny little island that you can do a lap in in 15 minutes, right? This is like a substantial-sized lost island in the middle of the Pacific or something.
2: In the the Caribbean or in Indonesia, I don't know where you're getting shipwrecked or what your circumstances were to begin with. But let's work our way through... All the medicine that you can salvage from a desert island, and then maybe I'll give you a bonus packet to take with you for reality TV purposes.
1: Ooh, okay, gotcha.
2: But let's just start with making it to land from your shipwreck. All right, you're out on a raft. You need a source of drinking water, and you know you've got water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink from the high saline Mm -hmm. content. So yes. How are you going to survive?
1: Um, I I don't know the answer to this question. I'll give you some do nots, okay? Because this is, I, I think there's some myths floating out there and that kind of thing. Don't try to drink the ocean water anyway. That's not going to work <laughs> even a little. That's, that's not going to do anything. You will um, overload your body with salts so fast that you will accelerate your death, and it'll be a bad death too, because death by hypernatremia is not pretty at all. Do not try to drink or save and drink your own urine. There's a reason your body's trying to get rid of those. And yes, although the salinity is going to be less so than from the seawater, um, the byproducts in there like urea and other waste products that you're trying to recycle, again, you're going to get sick faster than if you don't drink at all. So, Josh, aside from those, um, you know, you're, you're if you're on your raft and stuff and you've used up your last bit of water – Unless you can, you know, condense some water, because at night, you know, nowadays in the modern day, if you string up some plastic, you'll get some condensation, things like that. I don't know what to do in old-timey days.
2: Old-timey. This is still done today. You can drink turtle blood. Now, hear me out.
1: Hear me out. Okay, okay. All right, all right.
2: Apparently, and this was (laughs) fascinating news to me. Turtle blood has been used as a reliable source of hydration for sailors for centuries, as well as being part of West African traditional medicine to treat anemia, because turtles have about 50 milliliters of water in their blood for every kilogram of body weight. So a 20 kilogram turtle will give you about one liter of water. Oh, okay. A castaway from the Marshall Islands drank turtle blood to survive 13 months at sea. A fisherman from El Salvador drank turtle blood and caught fish to survive for over a year adrift in the Pacific Ocean. So apparently turtles are your real smart water. Um, Also birds. (laughs) Birds also have, but I wasn't able to get the specific amount. Fish blood should not be consumed because it's too concentrated in salt and proteins.
1: Got, okay so you can eat the fish if you can catch some and you have a, enough room on your boat to have some some sort of cooking mechanism and that kind of a thing or or maybe even hang them to dry out cuz that does work um there're chances that you can catch some parasites uh like the you know uh dwarf uh fish dwarf uh tapeworm my very favorite favorite diphyllobothrium latum
2: Die, all Three of them die.
1: <laughs> so there, there is a chance that you can get some of that because if you don't, you know, cook these fish really, really well, then they can, they can carry some of these that can be transmitted to you. Um, I don't know, Josh, if you're, you know, you're able to get your turtle and everything. If you just bleed it and you're drinking like raw blood and stuff, I don't know what your chances of getting like salmonellosis. Uh, And getting sick and dying that way. I'm always thinking of the the infections, of course, and that kind of thing. The birds uh, might be okay. Actually, that might be some of your safest stuff. Um, Seabirds don't have a heavy burden of like, you know, uh, uh, cryptococcus uh, or histoplasma as much so.
2: All right. So you've made it adrift on your raft or you've been purposefully marooned with a single shot pistol I don't know what got you onto this island. Maybe you're the Swiss family Robinson. Maybe you're Robinson Crusoe, but everybody poops. So, one yes. of the first things you want to do after securing a water source is to establish a latrine and keep it away from your drinking water. And, Santos, you can go into that. But do you know how deep you should dig your outhouse hole and why?
1: Oh, sorry, sorry. I thought you were going to ask me how deep is my love? <laughs> <laughs> if you have a, if the island has a water table, okay, you can often find that if you find, uh, you know, concentration of plants and then you can find where the water table is at. That makes you really lucky, by the way, because you, you'll have a source of drinkable water if you can filter it. So you need to go below that. Um, but I think to be safe, just in general, so meaning that you don't want the pathogens from your poop to be seeping out, you just want it to decay, go into the soil. I'd imagine, Josh, somewhere between three to six feet. Um, I'm thinking, you know, three feet's a good, you know, shallow kind of a depth because it's it's far enough down you can pile, you know, uh, coverings on it six feet, because, you know, you think of like six feet under that's where bodies were usually put so that when it when and if they rotted, um, they, you know, any kind of disease or anything wouldn't seep into the, you know, local grounds or anything like that.
2: Six feet is the right answer. And, and for a reason that you as an infectious disease doctor may not instantly think of, uh, okay. because outhouses that are at least six feet deep, can prevent hookworms, commonly found in the tropics, oh, from traveling yes. to the soil surface. Hookworms can only travel about four feet in one go. Oh, and, and okay, what's that hookworm? what's that hookworm that likes to burrow up through your bare feet in the sand when you're walking along the beach? <laughs> I wouldn't know, because <laughs> I don't go to the beach. Yeah. But you have to be pretty strong. Uh, strong Yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> so strongyloides uh is going to be uh, if i'm not mistaken that one would be a roundworm um uh the hookworm that we're thinking of uh is uh, is close to it it's it's we think about them a lot the same but ascaris so As- ascaris lumbricoides
2: so if you do get ascaris or strongylides. What kind of yes. symptoms can you expect? How important is it to dig a nice deep hole on your desert island?
1: For you and me, you know, we're we're well hydrated. We have good nutrition, Josh. There are a small percentage of people in the developed world that are walking around with hookworm, and really, you know, nothing happens. You eat well enough that you overcome any of the nutritional deficits or anything like this. The problem does happen when you're in a state of malnutrition, right? So if you're at a point where you're already losing calories, you're not keeping up, then you can actually get uh, anemia and protein deficiency because the adult and juvenile worms, as you're you know going and hanging out in your digestive tract, are going to eat some blood and they're going to, you know, reduce your blood counts and you're not eating, drinking enough to actually give your body the building blocks to replenish it. So anemia and protein deficiency are the major ones. We're full grown adults. Okay. So we don't have to worry about our growth and development, but if for any reason, a child, and this is why we really try to deworm areas. um, The, the major reason is because you can blunt developmental growth and, uh, and actually stature as well because of, you know, that's constantly sapping away the nutrition. So it, it will make you sicker faster, um, by kind of starving you if you're in a state of starvation. So this is something you don't want to have to deal with. Um, you know, in, in this kind of a scenario,
2: we're assuming that you're going to have or develop some basic survival skills because we are not that kind of show. We are just here to review. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> what are some medical things that may come up if you're stranded for no good reason on a deserted island? Now, as yeah. I was researching all of these, um, this this six feet deep to prevent four foot traveling hookworms was actually a major problem with sanitation in the American South, specifically around Alabama, Louisiana, uh, where the poverty stricken areas did have issues with insufficiently deep outhouses. And once they corrected that sanitation, they saw a lot of these cases drop and dissipate because the worms were no longer able to kind of, in this horrifying way, crawl up through the outhouse and not into your butt, but crawl up and get access (laughs) to your skin and internal system. And one of my favorite sentences from the paper that I was reading about it was, a hole that's three feet wide and five and a half feet deep will last five years for a family of six.
1: Yeah. (laughs) For an outhouse, yeah. Especially if there is some... any sort of drainage on the, you know, in the bottom of the thing. So... It's, it's okay if it ends in a, a terminus, right? Because what'll happen is the feces and everything at the very bottom will kind of compost, right? It'll, it'll go down, it'll get degenerated and eaten up by any number of insects and finally microbes. Um, so that soil will actually get regenerated over time, just turned into plain old soil. Your parasites can't make it up. But yes, if you have a higher usage rate, I'll say. Then of course you should make it uh, deeper is okay, but wider is more important.
2: Ready to live that island life yet? No? Then let's go on. <laughs> We've got more convincing to do. So
1: yeah, we do. Yeah.
2: Um but yes, and then when the outhouse hole fills up, you just move to a different part of the <laughs> island and dig a new one. But listen,
1: I don't five know feet why outhouse hole sounds deep, so
2: funny. Five years for a family of six seemed arbitrarily mm-hmm. specific, but I appreciate the research that I know must have gone into that. So, yeah, you have your campsite built, your latrine dug, your giant message for help spelled out in stones or shells or whatever. You're ready to begin your mm-hmm. Tom Hanks castaway life. So, yes, once you run out of supplies from the first aid kit that I haven't told you we're giving you just yet. Let's talk about some of the things you can do next with what's available. So sanitation, as long as we're talking about things, you want to be able to wash your hands because hand hygiene is no less important just because you're on a deserted island. In fact, it's probably more important given how you're going to be catching your food, making your shelter, all of these things. So if you can't make soap the Fight Club way, what do you think you could use as a substitute?
1: So... Uh, well, the solution to pollution is dilution, Josh. So if you do have any kind of running water source, well, first of all, you're in fat city, so you're, you're already doing well. So you can definitely carry water away from that so that you don't contaminate your drinking source and keep that as a barrel or whatever and, and wash your hands in there. Uh, that's number one. Um, The seawater is actually pretty good in terms of cleaning you off and everything. And so just having, you know, water moving over your your hands and and washing that way is super, super important in terms of soap. um, Oh, I I think I remember this because weirdly enough, you know, those old like reenactment towns, Josh, like uh, Jamestown and that kind of a thing in the United States so i went to one of those and i think we made soap um you need ash um lye um which i still to this day i do not know what lye is l y e and then um which is this kind of the scrubbing agent the alkaline agent and then i think you need an animal fat you need um something like a a fat to glue it all together and i think that's just soap isn't it it'll dry out your hands pretty damn quick it yeah.
2: is, but again, I'm going to assume that our average listener does not have Tyler Durden level of knowledge and that if oh, we okay. were to be dropped on a desert island tomorrow, I'm not going to know yeah. how to find lye or render animal fat. But one of the ingredients, just ash, ash from your fire, oh, sure. okay. can be used to clean. And there, are, there was a Cochrane review, a Cochrane meta-analysis, that looked at 14 mm-hmm. different studies assessing ash for hand cleaning. This is not ash wood <laughs> from the tree. This is actual ash. Sure. Ashes from a fire. So, right. only one small study was randomized to compare people using ash versus soap or other materials. And these mm-hmm. studies mostly included people of all ages, took place in a lot of low income rural communities. Six studies basically were conducted accurately enough or had a high enough power that they could shed some light on this question. And the end result is ash is non-inferior as a cleanser to water, but may lead to increased skin irritation.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Especially depending on what you have burned in order to create your ash. Um, especially if you're unfortunate enough to have an allergy, it might be a problem.
2: But if you only have a limited area of drinking water or you don't want to contaminate it, you can just wash your hands using ash from your fire and rinse them off in seawater, where you will very rapidly find any cuts in your hands thanks to the salinity of
1: the liquid. Um, This makes a lot of sense. So basically, it's gonna be carbon right massive massive amounts of of charcoal slash carbon um well, not charcoal but a predecessor. The one thing that that much carbonaceous stuff can do is it can it uh, it's very absorptive except especially for other organic molecules meaning bacteria you know toxins uh, all these kind of things that can get you sick by and large cuz you're not going to worry about like heavy metal poisoning on this on this island so you want to wash away uh, bacteria viruses if you can um and then any you know of the toxic chemicals that you might have done cuz you touched that mushroom when you shouldn't and everything else like that so yeah that that makes a ton of sense and i understand now why that's also a part of soap too
2: don't eat the mushroom santosh just don't it's, uh... never, it's <laughs> never a good idea or as, it's as, as terry, yeah you're as, not as terry pratchett puts it all mushrooms are edible once <laughs> Um, but yeah,
1: you're as much as you want to. You're not Super Mario or Peach, so just yeah. Unless you absolutely know what you're doing, no.
2: <laughs> so let's. I, I'm gonna give you your your reality show contestant bonus and ask you what drugs or devices would you bring. We'll say you may you're on your plane, your <clears> ship, whatever. <throat> You have yes. these things yes. on your person, so they can't be too exotic. But seeing yeah. as how we are a travel medicine show, I think it's fair to yeah. assume <laughs> we might be traveling with medicine. So,
1: yeah, okay.
2: What do you want to bring? Keeping in mind you'll have a limited supply of it. That once it's gone, is gone for good until you're
1: rescued. It's got, okay. Got it. So, in terms of equipment, non consumables. Um, it's not going to last forever, but if I had a life straw type, um, filtration water bottle, pretty much where you can just dunk it in any water and it'll, it'll filter through it for you. It will eventually get clogged and crappy and everything else, but that would be good. Alternatively for water, um, I'd love to have like a small plastic tarp because all you really need to do if you have a small plastic tarp is suspend that. Uh, on about you know, like four poles. So there's a dip in the middle. And if you just have temperature variation in general, you will get enough water just with condensation, you know, from the day to the night, and you can collect that um, just from the air. So you can have some, some water to have. Uh, I need my trusty Leatherman or Swiss army knife or something like that, that has a few blades and something on there. And probably uh, I'd love a piece of uh, flint to go with it so that I could strike it for fire. And I don't have to do something insane, like, you know, doing a fire bow or something.
2: Listen up there. For... I asked you what yeah, you yeah. normally travel with, and we're talking medications. Oh, you are not bringing yeah. a Swiss army knife on any U S the... transportation. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bubba over at TSA just totally took that from me. You, He's keeping it. So, you're you know <laughs> walking
2: out the door tomorrow morning.
1: Okay. And you're right. going to
2: end up shipwrecked. What did you have in yes. your pockets?
1: Okay. All right. So, if that's all it is, I usually bring uh, a. Uh, I, I take my prescription medications, so I take some supply of that with me. Uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, or Tylenol and, and paracetamol, uh, if you want to call it that, or, and, and ibuprofen. Um, I do not routinely walk around with antibiotics, despite what people might think. (laughs) Liar. Um, but other, no, no, I I don't, I don't. Otherwise I have a toiletry bag with, I know it's not strictly medication, but toothpaste, uh, one of the little travel soaps or something like that. Um, I mean, in terms of getting on a plane and going on a journey, that's pretty much all I have with me, Josh. Uh, never forget a towel. I always have a little REI mini foldable towel.
2: So, yes, yeah, statins would be nice to counteract the effects of all the palm oil and coconut milk that you'll be drinking. Um, oh, no.
1: <laughs> okay. But okay.
2: I, I would make a point of identifying where on the plane or boat is the AED or bring along a defibrillator with a solar charger to help rescue people who may be having cardiac arrest. Now, if I'm going remarkably well-prepared, I'd say codeine because it's good for pain, diarrhea, and cough. That covers a lot of ground. Um, Infections, (laughs) of course, you're going to want an antibiotic. If I had to choose an antibiotic, If this is an island with a lot of mosquitoes, I want to pick something that'll cover for malaria. I might want to Mm -hmm. choose doxy for tick-borne diseases, but there's also going to be a lot of sun, and I'm not sure I'm prepared to deal with the photosensitivity that doxycycline is going to give me. so
1: Doxycycline is an absolute, it's an amazing catch-all, and it's almost like a little bit of a cheat code, and I don't want to tell people about it freely but i guess we just told our audience but yeah it's one of those things that we use in infectious diseases when you're looking at a fever of unknown origin in a kid and you've done a good history and physical and you've ruled out a lot of things but you know it's something something exotic zoonotic doxycycline might take care of it by and large though for the usual stuff josh so if you catch a pneumonia if you get a uti Almost certainly amoxicillin or cephalexin as an antibiotic is an excellent catch-all as well. It'll also help a little bit with traveler's diarrhea.
2: All right. So that's your emergency last use or use of last resort supplies. But now let's start looking at what may be on the island that we can make use of for just general medical treatment. We have sun, sand, surf. There's got to be something, right? Let's start with what's at our feet. Sand.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, S- sure. Uh, sand can be used as a water filter if you use it properly, I guess. I don't know what else, much else you can do with it.
2: Well, in Marzouga, a small desert village in the southeast of Morocco, they offer okay. sand baths. And that is for patients suffering from rheumatoid diseases like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, or neuromuscular diseases like sciatica and low back pain. And the history of using sand as a treatment for articular diseases goes all the way back to ancient Egypt and Greece.
1: Ooh, some of your favorites. So (laughs) I
2: figured I'd look into this and find out how much of it was accurate and how much of it is woo. The bath okay. consists of covering the body in sand from the chest to the toes in a hole. Oh, yeah,
1: like, we did, like we did when we were kids. Maybe not you, because you were scared of the beach.
2: I wasn't scared back then. I've learned.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> I've learned? <laughs> okay.
2: All but right. You bury yourself in sand from chest to toes about one feet deep for an average of 10 minutes. After those 10 minutes, and this is important, you don't want to just sit there all day long because you are going to start essentially creating a dry coat and putting yourself into a little sauna. So after 10 minutes, exit the sand. Now, in this village, they cover the patient with a wool blanket to fight against the cold caused by the difference in temperature between the sand and the air. And Morocco is not a country known for its pleasant temperate climate.
1: I guess not. I mean, I don't remember... It was in black and white-ish, I think, but Casablanca didn't look all that hot, but maybe it didn't show like the whole desert.
2: Well, also when you're out in the desert burying yourself in sand, your body temperature is going to rise. So if you stay in longer than sure. 10 minutes, you begin running a risk of heat stroke or,
1: oh, yes.
2: or hypothermia because you've already heated up a lot and now you're stepping out into what is going to be comparatively a much cooler climate. So gotcha. it's an interesting approach. but. I did find one study that was looking okay. to examine a very specific kind of sand common to Central America and the Caribbean. Have you ever heard okay. of
1: monazite
2: sand? Uh,
1: I, I, I don't even know what the hell that is. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Is that, is that sand made by my aunt Mona?
2: No, monazite is a special kind of component of sand found in these areas that is actually low-key radioactive due to the presence of thorium and much less commonly uranium. It's used mostly for industrial purposes to make microchips and some other electronics, but... Monazite sand is found in huge amounts in India, Brazil, and Australia. The deposits in India are particularly rich. So a study in Brazil was begun, and I'm just going to say begun. I'm going to tell you about the methods, and then I'll tell Mm -hmm. you why we never completed the study, which is adorable but heartbreaking. Uh, A sample, A sample of 150 patients with primary knee osteoarthrosis will be selected for the study divided into two okay. random groups that will be exposed to sand. One would be the monazite sand group, another common beach sand group without radiation for 12 okay. months. Yeah. The groups will oh, be evaluated...
1: continuously.
2: 12 months at the beach, my man.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. This was two times per week for 30 okay. minutes each.
2: So. so the groups will be evaluated... <laughs> At their arrival at the beach and then at one yes. two three six nine and twelve months of exposure. Yes. Following the evalu- following the standard testing of evaluation for knee osteoarthrosis. So it was to Which is
1: hold on, hold on. I gotta say this because they named a cool thing. The WOMAC Questionnaire.
2: To evaluate <laughs> Function of an osteoarthritic knee. The study will be carried out on the beaches of Areia Preta de Gura source of monazitic sands, and the beach of Itapoa in Vila Vela, which is the sand without radiation. Selected patients. Oh, okay. A... So they okay. chose two beaches in Brazil. Selected patients will have their knees fully covered with beach sand for 10 minutes properly okay. analyzed for radioactivity or sorry, we'll have their knees fully covered with beach sand and analyzed for radioactivity and temperature for 30 minutes, mm-hmm. two yeah. mornings a week for a period of one year. So you had to go to the beach twice a yeah. week for 30 minutes for a year, just to bury your knee in sand. <laughs>
1: so there's got to be a little bit of a confounder here because you got to walk down to the beach but i'm sure that was taken into account
2: ah it's brazil everybody lives on the beach um <laughs> but okay here's so this is actually it's a pretty well designed study for it is. what they yeah, are and, looking to explore.
1: And they were looking for people, Josh, who had uncomplicated arthritis. So they couldn't have had knee surgery, fractures. Um, th- they couldn't have any hemorrhagic disorders. So you can get arthropathies, for instance, from hemophilia. Um, you can't have any um, infiltration into the knee. So for instance, uh, steroid injections. Um you had to be of a fair BMI, so you couldn't be morbidly obese. Uh, so there there were a few things where they were excluding you know, quite a few types of people and focusing in on uncomplicated osteoarthritis.
2: However, recruitment for the study was terminated. Did you happen to look at the date the study was set to start?
1: Yeah, it was actually posted first for recruitment in May 9th to 2019.
2: <laughs> so because of COVID, it was not possible to recruit sufficient participants to bring to the beach. Social yeah. distancing killed science, you guys.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. And this was remember May 9th, 2019 and then the pandemic just started in December 2019 and started to spread. So while You know, there were other trials that were going on for COVID and not, you know, but if you had something like this, which was not, I don't call this a critical trial, (laughs) unfortunately. So we were still trying to figure out, hey, is it okay to, you know, bring someone outdoors to the beach to bury them in sand like that?
0: We know now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.
1: like that probably didn't have increased risk at all for transmission of COVID because you're outdoors and there's no closed, uh, you know, small buildings or or distance problems. But at the time they couldn't chance it. And Brazil, like the United States has a wonderful public health service. So they had to go to these folks and probably a lot of other folks in universities uh, and stuff and just be like, You know, sorry, folks, you got to got to shut it down.
2: All right. So maybe the sand can help your arthritis if you're a more mature individual who has to survive for a prolonged Mm -hmm. period of time on our deserted tropical island. Uh, Maybe there's some caffeine, some, you know, some uh, java growing on your island. If so, good news if you've got respiratory disease, because caffeine... (laughs) Has you know quite the variety of pharmacological effects. It reduces respiratory muscle fatigue. It's a very weak bronchodilator, and key to this key to this particular episode, it's chemically related to an old drug called theophylline, which was used to treat asthma. Theophylline yeah. is another bronchodilator that could open up the airways and help the wheezing, coughing, and breathlessness. And we've talked about this in past years, that if you are deep in the jungle or the third world or the wilderness, somewhere that you do not have access to a wide variety of medications and or maybe you forgot your inhaler, start chugging coffee. Um, It should not be a replacement for traditional medical treatments. This is really a, again, use of last resort. But there have been some studies that show caffeine may reduce asthma symptoms, and it has been looked at as a potential treatment. So again, found a Cochrane review, which is a meta-analysis looking at a bunch of different studies that have been done and kind of weighing them all against each other. So in this one, seven trials were done involving a total of 75 people with mild to moderate asthma. These were all crossover designs, And in six of the trials, so about 55 people involved, in comparison with placebo, low-dose caffeine, and when I say low-dose, I mean less than five milligrams per kilogram of body weight, appears to improve lung function for up to two to four hours after consumption.
1: If you're having a mild asthma attack, uh, that's, that's a good amount in order to break the attack, so-called, meaning that because you're having bronchospasm and irritation that's going to last for some period of time. And then what's going to happen after a little bit, if you're able to get through uh, you know, the worst of it, is that the inflammation will cool off. And so a lot of what we do in asthma is to get someone through that worst of it. Uh, until their own body kind of like stops being so inflamed and, and, you know, heals itself. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. If you're able to get through two to three hours or Josh, you could redose at the end of that, because that's a good, like therapeutic time window.
2: Maybe you're, you've been on this Island long enough to have children. Maybe your family's stranded on there. You know who else (laughs) loves caffeine? Babies.
1: Who? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, we—it's uh, not widely known, but in our neonatal intensive care unit, right? We have our little t t t premature babies who are oh so cute and lovely, and they have issues with maturity of their lungs. Not like oh, you know, stop look making at these, faces at that. Look lim- at these kids yeah. can't even <laughs> handle their coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you have immature lungs which means that you do have trouble, you know, exchanging gases. So exhaling carbon dioxide, getting oxygen in from the air to your bloodstream. Those are all problems that we have to deal with. But we also have issues with respiratory drive because the brain and lungs and even the chemistry in your blood, the sensors that tell you your carbon dioxide is too high or our oxygen is too low, is not set. For getting outside of the body, when you're 29 weeks old, 30 weeks old, they're still set for being a fetus, or you know, getting the oxygen levels and carbon dioxide that you're used to getting, not by breathing, but circulation of blood through the umbilical cord. So you have to kind of provide a stimulation to breathe at the appropriate times to the brain, and give those signals to take breaths. And it turns out, Josh, caffeine is excellent for this. It's it's a great little like kind of Hey, hey, why don't you why don't you take a little breath there kind of thing.
2: So in neonates, it can improve lung stretch and expansion, cardiac output, and even blood pressure, which will then improve the oxygen supply throughout the body and brain. So it's yes. again, as as substances you are likely to find on a tropical island, caffeine pretty useful for more than, you know, worth its weight in in medicine. I don't know. Are you finding gold on this island?
1: (laughs) Um, Probably. If you're finding gold on this island and you're stuck on the island for real, it is useless, by the way.
2: (laughs) let's, Let's move on to the next one. You mentioned you might want acetaminophen, but what if you could make your own aspirin?
1: Ooh. Oh, you know... Oh, you've taught me this before and I've totally forgotten because aspirin is a, a, a the the salicylic acid like it's a plant derivative, right? Yeah.
2: You can make aspirin at home. Disclaimer. We are not <laughs> telling you to make aspirin at home.
1: No, but actually to tell you the truth, um Kiwi Crate and some of these other um you know, teaching kids science at home type of things. One of the very common projects is actually to distill and crystallize aspirin at home. So don't, now don't eat it. <laughs> yeah. Again,
2: hypothetical deserted tropical island. Yes. A lot of which the willow tree from which aspirin is made or birch Uh, But just the coastal plain willow is native to the southeastern U.S., Mexico, and more pertinent to our talk, the Caribbean islands and parts of Central America. Not as common in Indonesia or Oceania. So it really depends where your tropical deserted island is. But if you find it, you can make a tincture or tea using the bark So Mm -hmm. if you're using heat to purify the water, because boiling water is just not a bad idea anyway, boil it for at least 10 minutes with or without the tree bark, then use about one tablespoon of bark for each cup of water, simmer it for 5 to 10 minutes, and then take it off the fire and let it steep for 10 to 20 minutes. Then it'll have cooled enough, and you can drink a cup of the tea every few hours. If you're making a tincture... So if you um, wanted to make a tincture... To make a tincture, you add one tablespoon of bark per cup of alcohol, at least 80 proof vodka <laughs> <Yeah>. or brandy, <laughs> sure, cover, sure. shake, and let it steep for two to four days. And unlike the tea, which you have to have every few hours, you can take just one teaspoon of this alcohol-based tincture two to three times daily for effect. Yeah. You could also grind the willow bark up into a capsule but I don't know where you're finding a capsule or a fully stocked pharmacy (laughs) on this island. So
1: That's true. (laughs) That's true. You can pack it together um, into a thing, but it's not going to hold its shape very, very well if you don't have other fillers and that kind of a thing. Now, you might be thinking, what is this for? Well, aspirin is excellent as an antipyretic, so you can use it for fevers. We're going to go ahead and guess that Because there are a couple of contraindications. For instance, if you're having chicken pox, then you can get a really horrible syndrome from aspirin called Reyes syndrome. But I'm going to guess on a dessert island, you're not going to be exposed to any chicken pox, so that's fine. Maybe Uh, pigs, but probably not chickens. (laughs) But not chickens. Oh, stop it. But the other thing that... Um, it is used for is uh, pain. So for instance, if you have an injury of any kind that is not fatal or not, you know, something scary, like an actual fracture that can be fatal, uh, you know, the something like this. But you just need to, you know, modulate your pain for a bit so that you can rehab your shoulder and get back to it um, or rehab your knee so that, you know, the next time the Jaguar comes around, you can run for it without screaming out in pain. Then this is what it's really used for. And as well as an anti-inflammatory property so that you can accelerate healing for uh, minor things, you know, so bumps, bruises, abrasions, um, and even up to things like maybe like hairline fractures and stuff that will heal with rest.
2: So now we're we're slowly adding to our tropical pharmacy. We've got yeah. aspirin. We've got something for respiratory diseases. We've got sand for arthritis. What if you okay. have thyroid disease?
1: Oh, or, or even if you don't, because we need... Uh, Cofactors in order to make thyroxine endogenously. So you could develop hypothyroidism if you don't get a proper supplement of iodine, even though, even if you were normal to start with, which is why in a lot of the world, we just iodize our salt. So you get a normal amount of iodine. But
2: you're probably not going to have Morton's table salt handy.
1: Yes. (laughs) So,
2: and the iodine in seawater can help boost thyroid activity and support immune system. But again, that's going to require filtration. Yeah. However, a looking just a little deeper into the ocean, always a dangerous okay. activity.
1: <laughs> I. This is, by the way, so this is one of your advices of like, do what I say, not what I do, I'm guessing, because you are not following this piece of advice.
2: Ah. Uh, Well, listen, if I'm trapped on a deserted island, we've already made a series of bad life decisions.
1: (laughs) So something has already gone severely sideways. So let's not get. Okay, got it. I understand.
2: (laughs) But looking a little bit deeper into the water, kelp is a type of seaweed that contains pretty high levels of iodine and kelp Mm -hmm. supplements are a natural source of iodine. So the average recommended daily intake for people with thyroid issues is about 158 to 175 micrograms, and you want to avoid going above 2,000 micrograms per day. So this is where things get a little dicey because kelp can vary based on the kind of seaweed and the concentration. It can be as low as 16 micrograms in nori. To over eight thousand micrograms in some kinds of kelp, so eating Whoa. kelp nonstop may actually cause thyroid problems if you're relying on seaweed to get you know nutritional intake, but if you're only having it maybe once every week or several days you know, then you can get away or around the excess iodine consumption
1: uh, yeah so you. You don't need tons and tons of this stuff. It, it is a micronutrient iodine as a, as a, uh, you know, extra thing you need it, but yeah, it, a little bit will go a long way. Uh, micrograms, right? By the way. So if you're talking about a paperclip gl- is a gram, if you divided that thing up into uh, a thousand pieces, you'd get a milligram. <laughs> and so if you took one of those pieces and divided it up into a hundred pieces, you'd get a microgram.
2: So that's a lot of our basic medical cabinets. But, you know, there's one very stereotypical tropical fruit that we haven't discussed yet that does mm. a lot.
1: You put the a lime in the coconut and drink them both together. Put the lime in the coconut.
2: Yes. So. There, there's so much info. <laughs> it's going to drive you cocoa nuts.
1: <laughs> I have a small obsession with coconut. Like if there's, if you're like, you just walk up on me and it's just like, Hey, by the way, you want some coconut? I'm like, yes. I don't know what the deal is. That's because
2: you're both brown on the outside and filled with nutritional information on the inside.
1: (laughs) I didn't know what the second half of that was going to (laughs) be.
2: Because much like you, Santosh, coconuts are brown and hairy. So
1: (laughs) I'm not saying no, I'm not saying no.
2: (laughs) So let's talk about some of the things that people think you can use coconuts for and some of the things Mm. that we're trying to use coconuts for. One of the first instantly came to my mind, IV fluid.
1: Yes. Oh, oh, yes. We've talked about this before that the it's fairly sterile as long as you don't contaminate it once you crack it open. Um. It is the right sugar content and salinity, and it doesn't have anything in there that's going to cause inflammation, irritation, that kind of a thing. Um, so yeah, it's way safer than if you were to try to use like just, you know, river water or something like that to, to replenish someone.
2: Now, stories have been floating around about being able to use coconuts as IV fluid since at least World War II but Mm. it's not really extensively studied because most of the time you have IV fluid available. But in one particular case in, I believe, American Samoa, there was a patient who had become weak, shaky, dizzy. This is on hospital day 36, couldn't tolerate tube feedings. uh, And the hospital had no standard IV fluids available, no capability Mm -hmm. for making their own fluids and was not expecting new supplies for at least two days. So, since the hospital didn't have financial resources to fly supplies in, the physician had heard of IV coconuts being used and figured they would try giving coconut water for two days at a rate of about 1,200 milliliters a day.
1: Okay. So, I'm guessing they'd have to, you know, harvest it in a very, very careful way and probably filter it through. Because the biggest danger actually, inside of the coconut, it's fine. It's sterile. It's going to be okay. I'm going to
2: stop you. I'm going to tell you exactly how they did it.
1: Oh, okay. Got you. Yeah, yeah.
2: This is a study from 1954 in which 21 patients successfully received filtered IV coconut water without serious reactions. Each of them got about 200 to 500 milliliters per patient over a period of 25 to 180 minutes.
0: They only
2: got local infusion site discomfort at higher rates of infusion. So the faster you forced it in, the more they noted it. Now, how do you select a coconut for IV? Well, younger coconuts (laughs) contain more fluid and are generally chosen.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I'm just thinking. I'm going
2: full professor now.
1: No, no, I'm thinking of my grandpa at the grocery store. (laughs) Just You know, see, hear that? That That's how you can tell that it's ready to be injected straight into your veins. All right, put that <laughs> in the cart.
2: <laughs> each coconut contains about 500 to 1,000 milliliters of fluid. So each coconut's a little IV bag on mm-hmm. its own. Now, yeah. coconut water is the free fluid present inside the coconut. Coconut milk is when you have a mix of the fresh grated meat with the water. Yes. In yeah, this yeah. study- so- Relatives of the ill patient would climb nearby trees and retrieve fresh coconuts, careful not to crack them. They would then be husked, leaving the eye portion intact until ready for IV setup. And they look like bowling balls, one large eye and two smaller eyes at the base. A 20-gauge needle is inserted through one of the smaller eyes to equalize pressure within the coconut.
1: Oh, okay, got it. Okay.
2: On the first pass of the needle, coconut meat may block it, so a second needle is then passed through the same port.
1: Okay, well, they could use a different method. Wait, this was back in the 1950s, though.
2: Yeah. Then, a single-chamber blood transfusion tubing is inserted through the large eye, the coconut is placed in orthopedic netting, the base secured with tape to prevent slippage, and then hung.
1: Oh, 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 Josh. So, this is straight from the coconut. There's no like putting it through anything, like into a bag or something like that. Like, the, the coconut is the IV bag. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> That's so now, cool.
2: Now, this is not an optimal IV solution. Don't go out and replace IVs with coconuts because it doesn't have. <laughs> It doesn't have enough sodium content to really stay in the bloodstream. You could get elevated calcium and potassium, which carry their own dangers. But for people who have had their colons removed and struggle to stay hydrated, because you know the main function of the colon is to absorb water, that's why your poop is supposed to come out solid. Uh, yep. But people with conditions like Crohn's or gastroenteritis can lose a lot of water in diarrhea. And in those short-term cases, coconut water may be a good temporary deserted island solution.
1: Substitute. Ah, solution. Ha ha. (laughs) Uh,
2: What about, let's say you've injured yourself doing whatever on this island, trying to gather and put together this whole little pharmacy we've been describing, and you need some sutures. Well, guess what? Oh. So immature coconut fiber is non-absorbable. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And can be effective for cuts and wounds when used with dehydrated human amnion membrane. So this is from a patent that's been filed by a company who is trying to make uh, eco-friendly sutures. Thousands of suture fibers can be taken from a single green coconut, which is highly biocompatible. It's not going to cause a reaction or be rejected by your body. Now, again, you pluck it from the tree. And you remove what's called the quar, coir, C-O-I-R. That's the hair from the mm-hmm. shell of the nut. You then okay. soak that quar in water for 24 to 48 hours. This is done to allow the fiber to be separated into strands. They're mm-hmm. then soaked in alcohol for sterilization for about five hours. And this is repeated until the brown color is completely removed, alternating soaking in water, drying, soaking in alcohol, drying. This process is repeated about three to five times, and it's then dried in a hot air oven or, you know, deserted tropical island air for about an hour, (laughs) and then moist heat sterilization is done using an autoclave. Oh, okay. So So not everything you can have
1: on your castaway island, but...
2: Yeah. Hasn't been studied outside of mice yet, but they have filed a patent. Now, if you don't trust coconuts and you have a good head of hair on your shoulders, you can actually use your own human hair, uh, which has been done by a lot of dermatologic surgeons because facial wounds can yield disfiguring scars, and you need very narrow needles and sutures to stitch them up. Hair filaments have a very tiny diameter, about 0.1 millimeter and are used like stitches, and they used human hair as a suture in one study of a bunch of female patients, a mean age of 10 years old, with traumatic facial wounds of about 3.6 millimeters long. The injury depth varied from just skin deep to muscle involvement, and after using a standard period of time for for sutures or stitches, scars on the face were often hardly visible, with no skin reactions. So it's a low-cost technique, good for facilities with equipment limitations or battlefield or shipwreck conditions.
1: Oh, hey, so that's really wonderful. So we haven't quite figured out, I don't think, how to get a a needle, because that's the other part of it. Um, So I'm guessing that we'd need a small bore you know, some sort of a needle, uh, to, to pass the suture. But, um, uh, that's pretty amazing that what you need is, you know, I'm guessing that you need a little bit length to your hair, but it's, it's right there and it's going to grow like, yeah, you know, give it enough time. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: I mean, as for getting needles on our Island, if you can find and catch some of those birds or turtles that you've been drinking their blood for water.
1: (laughs) Okay. Fair. All right.
2: uh, You can probably sharpen several of the smaller bones into a a needle or suture kit. Again, we're leaving a lot up to your hypothetical ingenuity, but the point is, is these things exist and, and you're not totally left out to dry. So let's talk about one last thing from the coconut in wound care.
1: Dude, you are loving this coconut right now.
2: I told you it's coconuts, Santos. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I I do remember because I've been to some of the heritage centers in Hawaii when I visited and this kind of a thing. I do remember that, you know, it and it's it sounds funny, you know, the whole uh the Moana, you know, when he's singing about the Islasis, you know. Just look at the coconut kind of thing. That's like every other word in that song is coconut. But it it was like your Swiss Army knife. It could do absolutely everything for you. Um, I think you can also use it to like start fires, and, it, and it'll good provide news, clothing and blankets. Yeah.
2: And good news, the TSA does not prevent you from carrying a coconut onto the plane.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna try that next time. I'm gonna try that.
2: <laughs> so okay. Part of your right, just go everywhere with a coconut now. Um, I'm
1: I'm gonna put a caveat on there because it is an agricultural product. (laughs) (laughs) Customs may have something to say about it. Go ahead, but not the TSA. No, no, not the TSA.
2: (laughs) So, for our last fun coconut fact, yeah. um, A study was carried out to evaluate the antibacterial activity of a crude extract of coconut husk ash. So now you're setting fire to your coconut, mixing the ash, which you've been using to wash your hands, and making a little extract of it. And this was tested against some pathogenic bacteria, such as Staph aureus, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is going to be Bacteria you'll find on every island, everywhere, Mm -hmm. and of course our favorite Escherichia coli, E. coli.
1: E. coli. Thank you, Dr. Escher.
2: So topical application of this coconut husk ash was incorporated into an ointment to accelerate wound healing, which you you know you could just bind wounds with a little bit of ash and plant fibers, Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: specifically increased epithelialization in treatment groups compared to other groups. So it inhibited growth of all test organisms, but it was dose-dependent. And this is more for you than our listening audience, Santosh. The Mm -hmm. minimum inhibitory concentration value for coconut husk ash extract against E. coli was 8 milligrams per milliliter, same for Staph aureus, and 10 Mm -hmm. milligrams per milliliter for Pseudomonas.
1: Not bad at all. Okay, gotcha.
2: So... Based on those numbers, would you as an ID doc say, in the absence of all other resources, this would be a good Neosporin for wound healing?
1: (laughs) It would be excellent, especially because it's topical. We're talking about surface wounds and and cuts and scrapes and that kind of a thing. You're not worried about toxicity from systemic circulation from whatever substances are in the ash. So yeah, you can get quite high concentrations of whatever the bioactive chemicals are in the ash. And, um, if you're able to, I don't know how you'd find, you know, petroleum jelly or something like that, you know, to, to make an ointment or something like this. Maybe if you, if you found some aloe on the, on the Island, you could incorporate it that to make a, a lotion or an ointment, but because you're applying it there and you're keeping that substance on, you know, for a period of time and allowing it to act and sterilize that site, then it's an excellent approach, and it kind of makes sense, right? We we talked about ash before in terms of cleaning your hands. This is just you know the the coconut ash, which seems to have a a couple of other you know extra stuff um, that uh, really helps you know beat down some of these bad pathogens. Just like you said, Josh, pseudomonas is very ubiquitous. Any place you find moisture, you're going to find pseudomonas. Staph aureus and E. coli you carry around with you everywhere. And if it gets into a nasty place like a wound, it'll, you know, cause some big problems.
2: So I think we've we've created a pretty effective mini hospital situation, mm-hmm. you know, very low resource hospital, but yeah. a lot more than you had when you crash landed on this island.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and... Like you said at the very beginning, I'm not going to be, you know, as much as you said, I'm not going to be flying with a bunch of coconuts, uh, (laughs) nor am I going to have a suitcase full of sand or ash. So, you know, having to find these kind of resources on your desert island uh, is yeah, very, very useful.
2: Now, if you'd like to see how you personally would do in this situation without being an 18th century pirate or involved in a terrible television series accident, you can try one of two things. The low-budget option is there is a card survival game on Steam. Uh, It's actually called Card Survival, which is pretty (laughs) accurate in mechanics about what you can do on an island with limited resources and knowledge. You have to do things like wound care, and get water sources or you can get heat stroke for those of you with higher budget and or uh low low inhibition okay. there is there is a tour company that will take you to an island a deserted island train you for 5 days in bushcraft and bush medicine and then set you free to survive for 3 days on your own
1: yes okay all right <laughs> Um, uh, so that's, that's like for real, real.
2: Yeah, that's for real, real. It's, it's, uh, I'll include the link in, I'll include the link in the show notes, but it's called Desert Island Survival and you can pay right. them to teach you for five days and then just leave you somewhere.
1: <laughs> I'm sure there's some sort of resource to come, you know, pick you up and everything. They, they do I'm a lot of I'm guessing they don't, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing they don't want to risk the... Uh, you know, either the insurance premiums or whatever. In order, <laughs> you to, didn't you know... read.
2: You didn't read the waiver. Yeah, but Oh, oh did check you... it out. Check it. No, it's legitimately. They take you out to the middle of nowhere. Uh, you have four different islands to choose from, and then they'll train you in survival skills. So it's for people who are really looking for that, you know, naked and afraid experience. Uh, <laughs> but now we've given you a couple things that you know you can always take with you to those options so that's it for this season and we hope you've enjoyed it we've really we're always excited to Uh to watch our audience grow and to find new ways to tell you about all the cool things that we can tie medicine to and Mm. uh, we will be back in October for season number 10 a full decade of doing this (laughs)
1: <laughs> and uh, we will emerge from time to time to give you just a little something, something to tease you for the future.
2: Or, you know, feel free to head on over to TikTok, where I am now on there as Dr. J Talks Medicine. And... Yay uh, we'll get around to bullying Santosh to join one day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. For now, uh, you know, we've, we've got our, uh, we still call it a Twitter account. We've got our Twitter account. You can tweet us there, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and you can certainly browse back and catch up on our catalog because our episodes are posted uh, pretty, pretty far ways back on travelmedicinepodcast.com.
2: So that's it. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with a lot of resources for further reading on this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next season, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, a spin on your globe. And when you've (laughs) done all of that, Happy travels.
1: Bye, everybody.